Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Monica McLemore. She's an associate professor of nursing at the University of California at San Francisco. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Thank you, Max, for having me. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I, I, I love your podcast and it's such an honor to be on it. So thank you. So I'm an associate professor with tenure in the Family Healthcare Nursing Department at the University of California, San Francisco. I am also a clinician scientist at Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health, mm-hmm. uh, or the ANSWER program, which is a program of the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health, and that's in the uh, Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at UCSF. And I, I say that because I maintain a couple of different affiliations within the university, and then I always talk about how I am an advisory board member to the Black Mamas Matter Alliance because I spend a lot of time uh, trying to work in community and and Black Mamas Matter Alliance is doing such amazing work that I I claim them as well. Um, And I I just think it's super important, um, you know, that we be very honest and transparent about what our affiliations are. I retired from active clinical practice uh, in August of 2019 from Zuckerberg, San Francisco General. I worked there for 18 years mm-hmm. at the Women's Options Center, and um, but I've been in clinical nursing since 1993, so for you know 28 years. You know, for, for your listeners who don't know, my baccalaureate degree is in nursing, and my master's degree is in public health, and my PhD is in uh, oncology genomics uh, from the School of Nursing. And so I I am public health trained. um, And for me, it's been very interesting to watch um, how COVID-19 has has shown, um, unfortunately, the divestment from our public health infrastructure and why it's so important and why it's such a a crucial partner to clinical health services provision. So it's it's just a very, it's an interesting time. Well, thank you so much for that introduction uh, and for your listenership. Um, So one of the, one of the things I'm curious, I mean, I've, you know, been following you on Twitter and like stalk your profile page over UCSF's website, but what is sort of like your main, if, you know, if you had to pick four topics that you, that your research is about in your, um, clinician scientist role, what would you describe to any given like passerby? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate the question. And thank you for shouting out social media. I think it's an important way um, for uh, science communication to happen. And that's one of the reasons why I like your podcast as well. Um, I, I always say to learners and to students that if, if trolls, bots, and Nazis are the only people that are speaking on Twitter, um, then we can't then complain why it's successful. Right. Um, and that's true of any other social media platform. I was an early adopter of technology and I always have been. So, you know, that's a very important part of my work. I don't see it as separate from my uh, program of research. Mm-hmm. So the cogent narrative around the work that I do, um, I, I say it like this because I currently have seven funded research projects and I'm working on two really big grants. The unifying principle of my work is that I like to um, say that I research across the reproductive spectrum, mm-hmm. um, and and my work is really focused on the people who have capacity for pregnancy. Um, and I say it that way because I like to study people regardless of, of how pregnancies occur and regardless of how they end. So that gives me a, an opportunity to look at everything from, you know, the distribution of reproductive um, uh, technology 
mm-hmm. um, like egg donation and um, uh, infertility treatment, all the way to understanding, you know, health policy uh, in terms of, you know, workforce or uh, implications of laws that happen in different states or at the federal level, all the way to understanding reproductive health rights and justice. And reproductive justice is, is sort of the unifying theoretical construct that I use uh, for my work. Mm-hmm. And what that means is, you know, it's a very parsimonious or beautifully um, uh, crafted uh, perspective that states, and it's grounded in Black feminism and human rights, but it really states that people have the human right to create family in the ways that they see fit. Um, and, and to become pregnant or not become pregnant, if those are things that they want to be able to do to optimize their reproductive life course. Uh, they have the right to parent with dignity and to maintain the children that they have. And so really thinking about my early work with incarcerated individuals, one of the things that always drove me crazy was when people would have to legally uh, relinquish their parental rights mm-hmm. because they were incarcerated. Right? I mean, so anyway. Um, and that people have a right, uh, a human right, to disassociate sex from reproduction. Um, And I think that's a really important thing that we don't talk enough about. I am, you know, part of the 16% of individuals worldwide who uh, choose not to parent or are not parents. And that's purpose of I never wanted to be one. Mm -hmm. And so as we think through these human rights of how to optimize our reproductive lives, I see my research program as informing, you know, all of those different layers but centering the people who experience the uh, reproductive, you know, oppression or reproductive issues. Mm-hmm. So one of the other core tenets of my research is also about leadership and what it means to be able to partner with community and to allow them to lead where it's appropriate and allow academic institutions to lead where appropriate and allow health services to lead where appropriate. Because I think one of the, the important jobs that we have as scholars and as scientists and as educators is that we have to create the space to unleash the creativity of humanity. And the way that we do that is we allow for different kinds of leadership to come forward at different times when it matters most. So, you know, what you just mentioned related to, uh, you know, these different aspects of having the potential of being pregnant and birthing, made me uh, think, you know, oftentimes we don't think about abortion and birth as being parts of, I guess, parts of like... A continuum of the same thing. Right, exactly. We (laughs) think about like society, you know, society sees abortion (laughs) as the thing that, which technically, quote unquote, like, you know, stops pregnancy, but there's, there isn't as much a conversation between the consequences that, lack mm-hmm. of access to abortion have on birthing outcomes as much uh, oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah let me talk you through this one because the public just doesn't get this and part of this is our fault right as mm-hmm. healthcare providers and as health services right so i don't exempt myself from blame when i'm being critical of others because I've, i'm part of the system i have Indeed. been you know like i said since 1993 that's a long time to be a nurse right mm-hmm. but here's the thing all pregnancies in Right. But but for, but for so long, we have focused in health services provision and legal protections, mm-hmm. rightfully so, on procedures. Right. Because abortion is perceived as a procedure. Mm-hmm. 
not an into a pregnancy, right? So, and, and there have been, there are reasons for that, right? I get that, that it's not legally expedient or it's not a legally appropriate argument when you're talking about choice to create a framework that says abortion is something that ends the pregnancy, just like birth is something that ends the pregnancy, right? You can't make that argument because his, for too long, we've allowed legal protections and legal arguments mm-hmm. to drive what a public narrative should be. So that's my, that's my first problem, right? That's my first point and my first point of critique. The second point of critique is people think that pregnant people and people who have abortions are different people when the truth of the matter is they're the same yep. people at different time points in their lives. Let me say that, let me say that again, right? Because people miss this. People think that folks who have abortions and people who have pregnancies and births are different people. They are not. They are the same people at different time points in their lives, right? Wrong guy, wrong time, no job, uh, no money. Oh my goodness, I had just had a baby. I need to pay attention to my other familial responsibilities. Oh, my parents are sick. Oh, whatever it is, it, it doesn't matter what the reason is in my mind, right? People who have birth, people who have abortions are the same people at different time points in their lives. And then if you accept that all pregnancies end, right? If you can accept those three facts, then we can have a really interesting discussion around why abortion restrictions and the lack of abortion is inextricably linked to perceived and or real increases in maternal morbidity and mortality as it is experienced in the United States. Mm -hmm. Because you will then accept the fact that the people who are most likely to die from childbirth and pregnancy, the people who are most likely to die from one aspect of a pregnancy ending, right, mm-hmm. are the same people who are going to have a really hard time accessing abortion, mm-hmm. especially as it's further restricted, right? Mm-hmm. Which means that if you also accept the fact that the dis- there's a disproportionate number of black and brown people who have abortions in the United States, not because we're inherently bad, not because we're inherently promiscuous, not because we inherently have unintended pregnancy rates even more so than other populations. But if you accept the fact that social determinants and structural determinants of health, really grounded in racism, are responsible for those things, then you can have a different conversation. Do you realize that half the births in the United States are covered by Medicaid, the public insurance that we as taxpayers and other people who work pay payroll tax support? If half the births in the United States are covered by Medicaid, then we should call out unethical any state that did not expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. Because we know that the health outcomes that those people have are better than uninsured individuals, right? Health insurance in and of itself is a mitigator of poor, poor outcomes, and, and in the birth space particularly, but horrible outcomes when we look at adults, right? So if we already know that, then in my mind, the link between understanding abortion restriction, which will also mean that those potential pregnancies that end, and there are 900, estimated to be 900 so thousand pregnancies, in the United States, if you think about the number of abortions that we have, according to the Guttmacher Institute, right? If we have, and our numbers have been dropping every year, if we have 900,000 abortions in the United States, and all of a sudden Roe went away tomorrow and abortion went away tomorrow, 
how do we think that those individuals would fare in our current health system if those pregnancies were going to be maintained? When we can't even keep currently keep people alive who want their pregnancies and to be pregnant at this current time. We have a shameful black maternal mortality rate now. If we were going to overstretch, and, and, and hopefully now with COVID-19, people understand how stretched our healthcare system currently is, but let's just say we were gonna absorb a whole other million pregnancies. Reminder, pregnancy and childbirth are the number one reason why people come into hospitals in the United States. We have four million births per year. So let's just say we were just gonna add on, round up, let's say we we're gonna add on a whole other million pregnancies because of the loss of abortion services. How do we think those outcomes are going to look? That's how I, why I always say to people, you know, if you want to make that argument, that's the language that you need to use to make that argument. But there's a whole other argument that needs to be made, which is that pregnant people and people who have bodily autonomy should not have other people deciding what risk they are or are not willing to take on. That's the other argument that I think is important that needs to be made. What you just said is such a perfect explanation for, you know, for this huge issue of like lack of access to abortion and all the downstream effects that um, that that has. Now, recently, the Society of Maternal and Fetal Medicine um, committed to supporting, you know, researchers um, and, and clinicians who are interested in participating with uh, with people in family planning. Uh, uh, or family yes. services, and I think that's yes. really innovative, right? Because when you think about MFM, you think about pregnancy and birth, and you think about the sometimes the sad ways a pregnancy ends in terms of just you know it being I don't know devastating um, uh, for um, for the mother. Uh, but this collaboration, or the, you know, the support for this collaboration, it's you know seems to be you know, a promise, right, in terms of addressing yeah. that long-term impact. So what do you, you know, as someone who studies reproductive, uh, the, the reproductive uh, spectrum, what do you sort of like, what would, what would you envision, right, to be the perfect mm -hmm. uh, marriage between family planning and MFM? Yeah, let me let me walk you through that because I the the new president of MFM is Judette Lewis, mm -hmm. and I had an opportunity to talk with her, and you know, and she's an incredible black woman and 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 maternal fetal medicine person. Let me say a couple of things about how I see reproductive health services and 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 what my vision of of what I would like it to look like. I think it's a great first start. I never I I actually never thought that that family should have been broken up, right? I get why we have pediatrics. I get why we have maternal fetal medicine. I get why we have family planning. I get why we have gynecologic oncology. Like I get all that, that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the way that we organize health services provision though, it doesn't make sense to the public or the people we serve. Mm -hmm. And so let's just start there, right? Moms and babies, moms and families, babies and moms and families should have never been separated out in health services provision, even though I understand why we did it. That said, family planning should have never been separated from maternal fetal medicine. And I would also argue that family planning should have never been separated from reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Mm. Because I will tell you that given the large number of couples who end up 
you know, with in vitro fertilization uh, or other types of, you know, pregnancies that have gone awry, you know, there has always been a referral of individuals to either deal with pregnancies that, that have complications or problems and or to, for people who have miscarriage and other types of issues within the infertility context, um, I can't tell you in my 18 year career how many people I have taken care of um, who have been either with REI folks or with MFMs as high risk pregnancies for your listeners. Now, what I think is, is really important as part of these narratives, I would like to see some serious writing from the uh, family planning and MFM folks are explaining this to the public, mm-hmm. right? Really laying out what the case is. Why should family planning be an essential component for high-risk OBs and people who work in maternal fetal medicine? I think this is actually a way for uh, maternal fetal medicine folks to gain some community credibility um, because I think it, it, it grounds them. I think so much focus on fetuses and high-risk pregnancies has been around like not the pregnant person, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So the further and further you get away from pregnant people, the more I'm cautious in terms of how I engage with you. Because if you can't look at the entirety of of a of, of family and their transitions and how they're managing all of this, in addition to their physiological condition, mm-hmm. then I think we've, we've missed out on an opportunity to partner with the people that we serve in ways that I think are super important. Right. That's, that said, uh, we, we historically have not talked like this, right, to communities that we serve. Mm-hmm. So I would love to see some very public tweet chats. I would very like to see some joint op-eds. I would like to see some joint perspectives in clinical journals, really explaining why it's so important that the, the pregnancies, the pre-pregnancy interval, the postpartum period, why across the spectrum, we want the communities we serve to be as healthy as possible because we know from evidence that that ensures the best outcome. Mm-hmm. Right. So why do we want the MFM people to talk to the to the family planning phone? Because we don't want people to have to force contraception on folks. Right. Where it feels unnatural or it feels coercive. We don't know what the best practices are for what com- when we're and how communities want to hear about, you know, pregnancy spacing or the interpregnancy interval. We actually don't know the, the most opportune time to talk about that, mm-hmm. right? We don't know the most opportune time to talk about, you know, reproductive life course and wellness across that, that spectrum. And that's a long time, right? People forget that if you are in the window, you know, of, of the normal curve of when people have can optimize their reproductive life, that's between generally 15 and 44. You might spend 30 years of your life trying to avoid pregnancy if you only want two or three kids, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, to, just to do the simple math on that, right? I mean, let's say you want two to three kids, okay? But you got like 30 years of fragility. You must spend most of your fertile life avoiding pregnancy and trying to be as healthy as possible for when those three kids come along, mm-hmm. right? Yep. That's the messaging we should have used for the public. Right. Not that if you're a teen 
and you have your children. Somehow we need special programs for you because you're deviant, you're bad, and you're this and that. We should have never done that, right? We used to say, okay, let, if you are in the range of normal and you are going to have reproductive years between 15 and 44, what you going to do? What you want to do? How can we help you optimize what you want, mm-hmm. right? That's a really different question. Because then that doesn't mean, okay, who are you going to marry? And you got to find a person. That right? Asking that question in that way brings in the LGBTQIA folks. It brings in the folks who want a parent without a partner. It brings in, it brings in a whole lot of people. Mm-hmm. Right? Totally destigmatizing so me, reproduction. Exactly. It's a normal part of healthcare. Just like in the same way when you think about, okay, do you want to optimize like you know, your physical conditions, just like when you walk into the gym and the physical trainer, you know, your, your personal trainer is like, okay, so what's your goal? Right? Mm-hmm. But we also need a health system that's responsive for people who don't plan. Life is about adventure. It's about wonder. It's about discovery. And some stuff happens that's just not planned. And sometimes it's awesome. And sometimes it sucks. And we need to, like, be real about that, right? hmm Absolutely. And so as we think through a reproductive life course, we need to also have space not for rigidity, but for flexibility, mm-hmm. right? For people to be able to have the reproductive life goals change over time, right? For people to be able to like make a decision on the spur or make a decision that's been planned forever. Like we need, we need, a, we need to build a public health and a health system that can be responsive to that. And that's why I think the, the joint part, more joint partnerships between different specialties within reproductive health services and in professional societies and in public health and in policy. I love these uncanny partnerships because hopefully it'll get us to what we're actually trying to build, which is what are the supports that people need in order to optimize their reproductive life course and how they see it as. Yeah. That for me, I'm 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 all about that. That makes me happy. Well, thank you. I I mean that makes me even more excited um, to see sort of <laughs> like, you know what's going to come out of that um, project. Um, and so it, you know, talking about more um, you know sort of like interprofessional collaborations uh, and models of care. So a while ago, you and I had a short discussion on Twitter. And you mentioned we're currently in a space where there is quite a bit of a shortage um, of midwife uh, or, or, or schools that will train midwifery st- students. And we know that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like models of prenatal care and, and, and um, care during labor and birth um, mm-hmm. are better when midwifery is you know is embedded in these in in, in these models of care so mm-hmm. what are your thoughts in you know about the, the existing barriers when it comes to increasing um the numbers of people who will train in midwifery and mm-hmm. and, and and what does you know like diversity look like in that space um, because obviously yeah it brought in a yeah. but if there's no diversity there that also brings its own sort of like kind of problems yeah, let me let me be really clear on the record on this. I because pe- there are people who interpret my words in very weird ways. I work and and have worked collaboratively with physicians my entire career, mm-hmm. and I I think that there are very important places uh, where physicians are greatly needed, um, and I have a deep amount of respect for them. 
uh, even in the birthing context, but I don't think they should be the default or the norm. Um, and, and I've been really clear in terms of saying that. Mm-hmm. That said, midwifery has its own problems, and I'm not going to try and misrepresent it as a panacea. So, you know, one of the most important and interesting things for me about midwifery and midwifery care is that I especially like to describe to the public is there are 108 historically black colleges and universities in the United States. Mm -hmm. And 39 of those uh, historically black colleges and universities have associated or affiliated medical centers or schools of public health. Zero of those institutions have programs in midwifery. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you think about the black birth work, force, or when you think about diversification of the healthcare workforce, especially the birthing workforce, um, we have a structural problem that will need a structural fix. And that is, of the 39 accredited midwifery programs in the United States, none of them are at any of the schools that have the greatest pipeline of individuals who could be educated to to rapidly become midwives. That said, in the midst of the the Black maternal health crisis we have here in the United States, and again, going back to the framework of pregnancy, irrespective of how it ends, because I like to also point out that that there are midwives who provide all different kinds of abortions. And I I do like to say, remind people, there's like five different kinds of abortions. When we talk about it, everyone sort of talks about it like it's one thing, but it's not. And it ranges everything from pills that people can take at home Mm-hmm. to induction terminations, to complicated, you know, surgical procedures. So I like to sort of clarify that, that there is a role for midwifery in the provision of abortion care, mm-hmm. besides, you know, uh, doing histories and physicals and giving people pills. Because in the UK and in other, you know, countries where they do have a, a larger midwifery presence, midwives do assist people with induction terminations and they do assist people with their medication abortion. So, you know, across and midwives are also certified to be able to care for newborns in the first 28 days of life. Mm-hmm. So with the midwifery, when you think about our birthing workforce in the United States, it gets very, very complicated because we have a pipeline problem because the most natural place where you think you could diversify the workforce, i.e. historically black colleges and universities, have no programs in midwifery. Okay. Peace one. But peace two, also in the United States, you have different kinds of midwives and different kinds of midwives exercise different kinds of power in the United States differently than in other countries. So you have three kinds that we acknowledge. Uh, I'm in California. So we have Uh, certified midwives, CMs, you have licensed midwives, LMs, and you have certified nurse midwives, Mm -hmm. CNMs. And despite common um, certification and licensure for some, um, there's sort of a wide uh, range of what happens in different states based on what kind of midwife you are. But one of the most interesting statistics that always boggles my mind is there are only six states where uh, nurse midwives do not have independent practice, meaning that they have to have physician supervision. And California happens to be one of them. Mm. So, you know, it's one of those weird places where without, you know, collaborative agreements, midwives cannot function independently. But there's only six states in the United States where that's true. But you asked a more important question, which is around equity, diversity, and inclusion. 
and the oil-free. There's three big things that gum up why we can't have more, you know, people of color and, and Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color midwives. Number one has to be bandwidth. I mean, first of all, midwifery is both an, ex an expensive and an intensive program to run. And most programs, I, I sit with the midwifery faculty at, at UCSF, and I can tell you, we accept 16 students mm -hmm. in our classes. 16, right? That's not a lot of people. And so when you're thinking about the number of midwives that we would have to produce, you know, our slots are limited by the number of faculty that we have to teach, the number of preset, clinical preceptors that we have, and we're competing for clinical sites and birth education with residency programs. Mm. And with programs, you know, whether it's obstetrics or family and community medicine or osteopaths, you know, programs, we're competing for reduced clinical sites. So you layer that on top of the fact that we can only accept a certain number of students because we are limited by our faculty and the fact that it's expensive to run. And that the places where you would think there, there would be a natural fit to be able to have a more diverse workforce, i.e. historically black colleges and universities where they have no programs in midwifery, you've got a perfect storm where we have a, a huge problem where we think diversification of the healthcare workforce would be helpful, but we don't have a clean path to be able to, to, to do that, to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So that's why, again, you know, the fact that there, there, were, there was $100 billion in the $2 trillion, you know, package around COVID relief for healthcare institutions and hospitals. You know, I was really glad to see historically black colleges and universities, you know, named in, in potentially receiving some of those funds. I know. How is <laughs> the post-COVID world going to look like given this new legislation that was just introduced uh you know yeah. from the black maternal caucus like how are all the changes that we're inevitably going to undergo as a society going to inform yeah. the next moves when it comes to addressing reproductive health and reproductive justice i have to tell you i i am going to be on a tear mm -hmm. that many of the things that we have implemented as part of pandemic relief become permanent, mm -hmm. right? If we're going to have a reproductive justice public bill of rights, then let's do this, right? Mm -hmm. So under the omnibus, you know, when I think about Charles Johnson and what happened to Kira, right, the idea that we would have a, a public and community engagement component to maternal morbidity and mortality reviews, mm -hmm. we should be doing that anyway, right? Right? We should be paying those people. We should be making sure that they have trauma and mental health support because going through those cases are horrible. I've done it once in my life, okay? Mm -hmm. So, it, it, but, but how can we make sure the community can be engaged and understanding the root cause of something that happened without the legal liability, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, it's, it's just, we could be rethinking this in so many different ways. So, or the, the state pilot funds for doulas, right? right. One of the, what, it was a national program for Medicaid expansion to be able to include doulas, right? Imagine that. Naming them as essential members of the healthcare team for pregnancies when they end, irrespective of how they end, because I also know a lot of abortion doulas too, mm -hmm. right? As we think through uh, generating a whole body of paraprofessionals 
appreciating the fact that no, we're not threatened as obstetricians, as midwives, as nurses. We're not, it's not that we're saying we're threatened and there's no space for birthing people to have more folks. It's just that we've identified another role that birthing people need in order to be successful, right? It's not competition if we're centered on the birthing person or if we're centered on the pregnant person. So to me, I think that there's so many pieces of the omnibus that we need to not only adopt, but inculcate as normal in how we think about the essential components that are necessary to ensure good reproductive health outcomes. One of the other things I really love about Lauren Underwood's um, uh, addition to the omnibus was the mandatory extension of Medicaid and public benefit and the real support in the postpartum period. And we could have made paid family leave happen years ago. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get on that. Uh, if we were the single most interesting intervention that we could do to improve outcomes, especially when we know maternal death happened 40% time in the postpartum period, would have been paid family leave. Yep. And I'm talking paid family leave for anything, right? Bereavement, loss, miscarriage, abortion. It doesn't matter. If a pregnancy ends, then people should have paid family leave. How about that? You know how much of a game changer that would have been, right? <laughs> if we had done that as part of the ACA, where how different things would be right now, right? I mean, how different things would be for people right now had we included paid family leave in the ACA. Let's, let's, let's figure this out. Let's recreate our workplaces so they're humane, it, you know, more humane. So the next time we come up against something like this or some other pandemic that's different, that we'll know how to better respond. So for me, it's, it's, it's this bigger issue of, you know, we need to be better about thinking about the future health services that we want to be able to build. And let's put the foundation down there. If our work is not, you know, really, really moving towards the evidence that we need to make this all better and make this all different in the future, then we need to quit. That's what I think. Amen to that. Well, Dr. Makamoy, thank you so much. That was fantastic. And I'm glad we finally got to do this. Well, I'm grateful that you gave me a chance to do it. And, you know, I am so grateful for the different media that people are creating to document this time because I think it's super important. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Food Script.